You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Welcome to the Business Unusual Podcast. My name is Okejo Mamabolo. Um, today, I'm honored to be joined by Ofenza Mukwena, who's the strategic project leads at Uber Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I think, yeah, let's just get straight into it, um, Ofenza. Um, so I've seen, I've done my research on you. I've, you know, I've seen your interviews, your, you've been on panels, you've been on webinars, etc. Um, and the one thing that I just kind of was kind of bugging me was that I don't know much about you as, you know, Ofenza Mugwena, you know, what's your story, where are you from, you know, how did you get to um, being a strategic project lead at Uber Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, what's your journey like, you know, could you perhaps take us through that? Yeah, um, so first and foremost, gratitude, you know, I'm really grateful and um, that's, that's really, that's really where, where my story starts, right? Um, mm. So I'm from, I'm from Harangua. And I owe my obsession and my appreciation of transport to the township itself. Hmm. Um, so basically, growing up, we we would see ventures which are like nine seater nine seater cabs yes. moving through moving through you know the local network. Hmm. Um, and at the time, the townships were like real agglomerations. You know, so it's before the shopping malls kicked in, so they were they were quite hectic. And the, the major cabs were the big ones, you know, where you have the minibus type taxi, 12, 16 seaters, E20s, um, high ace, you know. Uh, so so, so, so that's, that's really where my, my topography sort of comes from um, and how I started understanding the landscape and the transport space. And from there, you know, growing up in Harankua, navigating right through different types of cities, different types of um, communities from Kwakasran to Salvakop, all the way down to Kimberley, you know, and right back up to Mafikeng to basically lecture at the Northwest University. Spent uh, quite a bit of time there. And in between, I was studying, um, went through to uh, Stellenbosch and then UCT. But the, the common thread there is that I was still quite obsessed with the transportation industry mm. to, to the point where, you know, the big question as, a, as, a, as an educator was, you know, is, is the curriculum aligned with what is happening in reality, what is happening in our communities, what's happening at the doorsteps of the students and their future, and actually mm. what's happening in, in terms of, you know, their qualifications and the extent to which they would be translated into actionable work, you know, yeah. and from there, I started working with municipalities, um, taxi associations, so helping taxi associations uh, convert into businesses and and the idea, so the big vision, let me just share the vision quickly. Yeah, of course, go ahead. So the big vision was to find a way to get the, to, to get the taxi industry um, listed on the JSC, right? Uh, so, uh, so it was like a disaggregated approach to stock market listings. And this was right before the, the special purpose uh, vehicles like your SPACs, you know, plugging into um, stock exchanges, right? So, so that was the whole idea and finding ways to, 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 to climate finance that type of program. So, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that's, that's essentially what, what led me to working at Uber. Um, and the, the big issue was, you know, how do we build strong relationships with, with driver partners? How do we engage with, you know, earners? How do we engage with couriers? How do we engage with the broader stakeholder environment at large, right? So it, it's, it, that's the landscape that, that I sort of plugged into. Mm. Okay, that's, that's quite interesting. And, you know, um, I was thinking when you were talking about the ventures and the high yeah. exes, and I'm, I'm thinking of how, you know, one of the conversations that's been happening a lot since we've had these ride-sharing um, companies come in and kind of change the transportation landscape. It's kind of interesting that, you know, you, you've gone from being in the townships and seeing those high exes, and now, you know, you're working at a company that's essentially kind of trying to take that model and, you know, kind of expand it. So, I'm wondering, like, what is your role at, you know, like, kind of just maybe for our audience to explain what your role is at Uber um, and, you know, what, what the, because you, you have a quite a, an interesting job title, you know, strategic project needs, you know, and um, I'm interested to see, or interested to hear rather, you know, what does your role involve on a day to day? What sort of, you know, activities do you get up to? I'm not going to say activities, but, you know, what are the discussions that you're having? What are the, the initiatives that you're trying to, you know, put in place? 
Mm-hmm. So I think maybe let me start it this way, right? The the big question is what is the future of work? Yes. And and the short answer is uh, the future of work is already here. You know, that's, that's the short answer. <laughs> yeah. You know, but when you when you when you sort of start unpacking that, it's a question about like what does work in the digital landscape really really look like Mm. and what are the mechanisms that are required to one make it equitable two make it fair uh three convert it into something that provides the level of access to earnings opportunity livelihoods that Mm. we could potentially have never experienced before so so just as a back, like from an age where the the traditional idea of work was you don't own the means of production, you don't have access to the market as an individual, there are landlords, so people who have access to the capital and the resources that you have to plug into. But we're in a world where, and we've been in a world where, especially in Africa, you know, we're in a world where the means of production are essentially highly accessible. So you can make a YouTube video via your phone and generate revenue from that. You can plug into any social media platform, almost any, and, and start selling products, right? Yes. You, can, you can lean into other platforms where they will provide you with the means of production, like a laptop. They'll provide you with the skills um, like you know, programming, and you're in a competitive programming work environment. Where, where you know and and then you also have what 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 we grapple with which is being in a position where you have an individual who can rent a vehicle or owns a vehicle or finances a vehicle and they plug into one two or three mobile applications to access passengers to access potential clients that pay you know them for this particular transaction and they pay a certain fee for the platform that they're using to access these these earning opportunities right so so it's a weird mix of dimensions that we're seeing unfold in real life right now Mm. and 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 the interesting bit is that traditional wage type labor labor is essentially a minority type issue right so in africa in particular you've got a scenario where you know more than 80% of the workforce is in the so-called informal economy and that's actually like the wrong term because you know growing up i mean we've seen this happen i mean my aunt had a township had a had a had a tuck shop right and and it, you know when I first heard the word informal, I was like, what, what do you, it's not really informal, you know, yeah. there are ways of, you know, engaging and communicating yeah. and interacting when you're using public transport, you know, it's not informal transport per se, it's just not in the same formation as what we're sort of familiar with in terms of the legislation that exists. So it's a system that is self-informed and, and mm-hmm. by and large right now, we're sort of confronted with that nexus where labor, technology, um, uh, uh, hardware, so vehicles, laptops and all that, and institutions, mm-hmm. that's government regulators and people, public opinion, media are all meshed up in this very, very um, uh, confusing space where mm-hmm. we wanna have a just transition from where we were to mm. where we are to where we could be. Um, mm. And we sort of summarize that as a fourth industrial revolution. So, mm. so the question is, you know, where is the future of work, right? It's, it's mm. live right now, like this yeah. very podcast, this very webinar, this very conversation, this very conference is essentially part of this, this future that we're, we're creating. You know, it's the mm. early stages of like the internet, you know, but just mm. from a work perspective, you know, mm. so that's that's basically essentially that's what I'm trying to solve for. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting you talk about the different stakeholders, um, and that's something I actually want to get to. Um, but I, I just kind of wanted to ask you um, a bit. You know, what are like because you, you mentioned some of them, but I just want to maybe touch on the challenges that the infrastructure sector is facing in South Africa. You know, um, like do you think so? Rather, what do you think are the main challenges? 
And, you know, do you perhaps have an idea of how we can perhaps solve them? Yeah. So maybe, maybe let's think about infrastructure, right? Um, yeah. So there are a couple of pieces to the idea of infrastructure. There's the traditional infrastructure piece, which is roads, ports, right? And, and then there is the underlying piece, which is the software that makes this infrastructure work and actually be as productive as it, what, it, what it possibly could be. And also its efficiencies derived from the kind of technology that's embedded there. But then there's another piece, which is where the infrastructure comes from. So, yes. so it is derived from A, communities, and B, you know, impact assessments. So that's environment, that's society, that's political impact. And then there is another layer, which is around the procurement side of the infrastructure itself, right? And on one hand, it, it, it is a, you know, infrastructure, you know, exercise. So I'm just taking that from Madeline Zhu. I hope she, she comes on your podcast at some point. Um, but, but that's... Basically, when we think about infrastructure, we need to break it down into those chunks mm -hmm. so that when we look at Africa as a continent and ask, hey, what is the state of our infrastructure? It's not just about the you know, thousands of kilometers of road infrastructure. It's not just mm -hmm. about the thousand kilometer of rail infrastructure that was essentially laid out for extraction purposes historically, mm -hmm. right? Um, and 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 then and then we have to navigate this interplay between the economic need for efficiency and the the societal need for welfare, right? All of that is embroiled in this infrastructure piece, right? So if we if we say so, let's say we look at the African Development Bank and you know the estimates for the kind of infrastructure backlogs that we have as a continent, the numerical value is the value of the investment, is the value of you know, construction and making sure that all of this happens. But the network effects associated with this investment, so the positive and negative externalities are really key. So I'll give you a simple example, right? So part of my PhD work is, is, to, is to sort of ask the question, you know, why do people cross freeways as pedestrians, even though there's a pedestrian bridge? Right. Yes. You go to Limpopo, the R37, you go to Kailicha, you see kids, you know, walking to school along a highway. Why is that happening when the infrastructure provision is there? Mm -hmm. Right. So, mm -hmm. so, so those are like the elements around, you know, at least for me, like how I think about infrastructure in and of itself. And then maybe another layer, this is because of the, the Buputatswana influence, right, where we sort of think about the extent to which infrastructure are public assets. So yes. what extent uh, is the community that is impacted by this infrastructure, a stakeholder, an investor in this, you know, piece of work that's available that they derive some economic value from. So, and this is, there's a book actually um, called uh, The Public Wealth of Cities. And, and this is like where, you know, the conversation around the interaction between taxes, you know, your, whatever income you have, the way in which your, the way in which your, your household expenditure circulates in your local economy and how that filters into the quality of infrastructure that you have, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then you've got the income disparities across different households. So, to cut the long answer really, really short, it, it's really about understanding that infrastructure is it's not just one piece. It's actually a multifaceted program that is subject to time. And our biggest risk, at least in Africa, is that we'll do an impact assessment for, say, the road in the, the roadways here in Gauteng, right? Um, and the 12-year-olds that don't have a car at the time are only going to use the infrastructure, you know, 10, 15 years down the line. And they're going to have a problem with the infrastructure because they weren't part of the surveying process, right? So, so, so there is that strange um, agglomeration of, of, of factors. I hope that mm. helps, man. Yeah, no, no, it definitely does, because um, you're getting me thinking more about, you know, the interaction of the stakeholders. Um, mm. so, you know, so we tend to think of, you know, the kind of four role players. There's the, you have the public sector, you know, that's the government and, you know, the regulators, et cetera. And then you have the startups, you know, the small companies that are kind of trying to make their way into the industry. Then you have big business and then you have the academics. And I mm. think you're in, you sit in an interesting position where you are kind of both an academic 
and you're kind of part of business. So you, you kind of, you're there at the intersection. So I'm just wondering, you know, how do, how do those four different kind of stakeholders, you know, and that's not including necessarily the communities, how do they work together to kind of make sure that infrastructure does kind of serve the communities, you know, so how do they work so that 12 year old that isn't crossing the bridge, you know, is crossing the field, how do they come together and show that that kind of, that infrastructure is used and is developed for people? Mm, mm, mm. That that's a difficult question. Um, really, really, and it's loaded. It's really loaded. So maybe let's start with the startups, right? Mm. So when we talk about startups, who are we really talking about? Are we talking about the the tenderpreneurs who are at the early stages of winning some projects? They started with you know maintaining bathrooms. Now they are actually, you know, fixing train stations. They are subcontracted, you know, in these big projects and they're trying to build a repertoire. Or are we also talking about, you know, the, the startups that are trying to get short-term procurement um, exercises so that they can initiate a very small project, like, uh, for example, a placemaking exercise where we're basically painting the street and turning it into a hub on weekends, right? Um, pedestrianizing it as an exercise. I mean, if you look at open, open streets for Cape Town, they essentially struggle sometimes to unlock the city so that they can pedestrianize just for a weekend. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that spectrum of startups is, is an interesting piece in and of itself. Right. Hmm. So, so that's one. And then if, if we think about big business, you know, big business, I immediately think of, you know, a company like the Hout Trade, right, which hmm. which which is which is an interesting entity because as an agency it's a mix between public sector and private sector right mm-hmm. and and so you've got the the how train management agency that hosts the provincial government Gauteng, and also hosts the Bombela concession company which in and of itself is an agglomeration of relatively large businesses in south africa right and and when you think about it the public private partnership infrastructure that we have in south africa is, is really at a point where we we sort of, so we're doing two things. The one thing is we we have introduced the idea and the process through the how train properly, you know, and we've basically made, found a way to roll it out in a consistent fashion through treasury regulations, right? But what's fascinating is that the, the kind of, allocation risk that's distributed between the public and the private sector is actually determined by, you know, how they sit down at the early stages of the project when they're there, when they're at the sort of final lap. But a small business might not necessarily be in a position to participate, you know, at scale in that kind of process that would be subcontracted by the private sector. Maybe they would support the public sector as consultants to work on the modeling. But when we disaggregate this conversation, what we see is that the interface between public and private sector is really about managing the risk, managing the financing risk for the private sector, and then managing the welfare risks for the public sector, right? Mm. So, 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 so the equilibrium is very, is very difficult. So let's use the cloud train as an example, just quick, right? So they have sort of like a, a baseline target from a, from a revenue perspective, right? Yeah. And, and, and this target is, is basically where if they meet this target or exceed it, they can then retain, you know, the excess, right? But then if it so happens that due to external factors, they don't really realize, you know, the initial or the envisioned sort of figure, then what usually happens is that public sector has to cover that up. So they need to top it up. Right. And this is what we see in a lot of infrastructure projects, whether it's freeways, whether it's railways and so on. Right. But to to cover this allocation risk, the challenge is what happens when you introduce an alternative piece of road? People have other forms of transportation that they can use, like ride sharing um, or a startup comes in and then starts, you know, providing shuttle services, you know, that start to erode. The, the you know the value proposition that was initially there so 10 years ago you know yeah. and that again increases the allocation risk and therefore puts the concession agreement into a 
bit of a challenge you know, for the public and the private sector. Mm -hmm. So these three are excitingly interesting when they're working together, mm -hmm. but they're also interesting when designing a project, we think about them as potentially competing with each other as well, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but the most important thing is that all the stakeholders need to complement each other. So mm -hmm. how does this translate into the community interface? So there are a couple of ways to sort of think about this. The one way is if you look at like hot topics, like etols, for example, right? I mean, the community is really, really responding to this at a, at a very aggressive um, at a very aggressive level, right? But then the public sector's long-term view was we're gonna invest in this type of infrastructure so that we smoothen, you know, the the roadway use. And then one, two, we will then prioritize high occupancy vehicles, which would be minibus, and it will be vehicles that have four passengers in them and so on, right? And then it, so they would be exempt from paying the fees. But the idea was to roll this out in such a way that they can use the additional resources to ring fence it to invest in public transport, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so for the hard train to exist, you know, the province had to borrow money from treasury. Mm. And they, they only paid it off like 2019, April, right? So just to finance like the public sector portion, right? But what we, what we didn't see as a, as a society was that, hey, actually increasing, well, expanding road infrastructure would induce traffic demand. So you'd have more people being like, oh, yeah, the freeway is free. I, I can actually, you know, it's bigger. It's more fluid. Now it's backlog today, right? Mm -hmm. And the whole idea behind the how train was to, again, relieve the traffic volume. So mm -hmm. let's minus, so let's minus the how train and minus the, the expansions that we saw through the etols, right? What would traffic look like right now in Gauteng, right? That's one. The second question is, what would the spatial configuration of the province look like right now, if that was not the case? So the, the cities or the micro cities that emerged around Gauteng stations, for instance, are something that's a big question. The, if you look at, let's maybe shift towards the taxi ranks, for example, right? If, if you think about that type of infrastructure, that's not micro infrastructure, that's serious infrastructure because it's tied to directly with the communities, directly with the roadways, like the proximity to people is so high that the investment program is fascinating. So the agreement between Santaco and South African Local Government Association to push for this mega taxi rank investment program raises a question around how is the community participating here mm. you know is it is it is it going to be a transit development transit oriented development exercise where members of the community can rent space in the taxi rank and that facility that they rent from is owned by the taxi association or taxi cooperative that's making money from that in addition to their traditional operations is there room for them to expand and so on so so the question maybe backwards would be to what extent could infrastructure empower communities unlock what we currently have. And you can't answer that with the infrastructure itself. You can answer that with the ecosystem. So that's the land use, that is the network itself. And it's also the impact of introducing that network. So on the community, so time savings, equitable access, and of course, safety, road safety in particular. So that's in a nutshell, I hope that gives you a sort of idea of how these stakeholders sort of interact. No, that's fantastic. I just wish we had slightly more time so we could get into some of these things because yeah, um, yeah. you're making me think about quite a few things. And, you know, the, the last part of what you just mentioned of how we're kind of trying to save people time, we're trying to kind of make cities more efficient. And that's mm -hmm. kind of leading me on to smart cities. And um, mm. I think I remember when I was first introduced to the top idea of a smart city, I kind of just thought what I saw, what I saw in entertainment, like, you know, the idea of, you know, these movies that we see, this is the future and have flying cars and all of this, you know, but obviously the more I learned about it, I learned that, you know, kind of because of the internet of things, like generally like smart cities aren't necessarily what we see in the popular media. It's, 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 it's here right now. Um, I was actually speaking to someone yesterday and I mentioned that, you know, 
Kigali is somewhat um, uh, a smart city. And um, so I just wanted to kind of, you know, for our audience, for people who don't know what smart cities are, um, perhaps because I want to chat a little about them, um, you know, maybe you could kind of give us your perspective on what smart cities are, perhaps provide a few examples of, you know, what makes a smart city, what examples are there of smart cities right now in the world? Hey, man. Hey, hey. This is a bit of a... Okay, this... I don't mean to be uh, controversial, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm going to answer you in two ways. So you decide which answer you, you sort of consider smart, right? <laughs> <laughs> You'll decide. So, so, so let me start with, with the most like basic human way of thinking around it, like a smart city, right? Mm. So just imagine this for a second, right? You know, waking up, it's an average morning, and you can literally unlock your phone and you start having a list you start having a list of of indicators that basically tell you something like the weather is of this nature um you can you can get coffee downstairs you know just click here and have them prepare it for you traffic is of this nature the next minibus taxi or the next bus you know near you is available at this time um, that's close to, you know, when you will need to leave, right? We can, you can open the shower, you know. Um, so the interesting bit is, you know, the, the extent to which the smartness is integrated with your individual way of life. So that's, that's, that's the most extreme case of like integrated, like a city that's so integrated with the population that's there. Hmm. So that's like, you know, movie stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> the stuff that I'm familiar with. <laughs> that's yeah. movie stuff. But yeah. actually it's happening now, right? Hmm. So, hmm. so the only thing that's not there is, 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 you know, the weather telling you like, hey, this is a good time for you to have a coffee. What you get <laughs> is like, if you have a, a delivery app, it's going to tell you, hey, you can order coffee, um, hmm. it, you know, if you're if you're using a ride sharing app, you're gonna get a notification. Hey, you know you can request a trip at around this time. Um, when you when you walk out, you are already you know under relatively decent observation in some of the major metros, um, and, and and that's one piece, right? But then in addition to that, as you're moving through the city, there is a degree of eyes on the street. There is a degree of visualization. There is a degree of hey. Google is this place busy right now? Right. So so we have to really think about it in two forms, right? The one form is a smart city that is at a municipal level and a mm-hmm. smart city that is disaggregated, that is provided mm-hmm. by various, various parties, right? Mm-hmm. And then so that's the one side. So that you decide if that's 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 the smart one. The mm-hmm. other side is where you know, knowledge of the city is inherent. So it's an indigenous knowledge kind of platform, right? Mm. Where, for example, if, if you're going to um, Lagos, there are people that, you know, when you're with them, they know how to navigate the city. They are mm. familiar with the disaggregate, disaggregated intelligence that's on the ground that we call street smart, right? So now... That is something that we're trying to plug in, you know, on you know across various platforms, etc. But cities are also in a position where they have an appetite to learn about this environment, which is why when you close off, you know, Times Square traffic, next thing you know, you've got tons of pedestrians, more foot traffic than any business can handle, and mm-hmm. the positive externalities just from closing traffic are enormous, mm-hmm. right? And that requires a certain level of, yes, you know, traditional intelligence, but also a level of smart cityness that requires the right surveillance, the right security, the right communication, the right applications that integrate with people and that integrate with the city. But then at a high level, transport guy, I'm just going to do this. At a high level, a smart city also involves like, you know, places that are really attuned with the data associated with the environment that they manage. So for example, easy detection of or automated reporting of potholes, you know, so if you just cross a pothole, you can actually report it. The GPS location is already feeding into, it already feeds into the city. 
Second piece, traffic management, right? Where the, the city itself is of such a nature that the main freeways are actually managed in various ways, from a pricing perspective, from a plating perspective. And, you know, either you pay for it at a certain time or you change the way you travel or you just don't go to work, right? You know, and, and it's really about taking the data that we have and the infrastructure that we have and converting it into something that helps cities become more breathable, become more livable, right? And that is one of the main objectives of having a high quality smart city. But on the other hand, it's also a revenue generator, right? If you have the right kind of data, you are in a position to plan places, environments properly so that you can actually optimize the, re- the return on investment from public fees, right? So, mm. so this is also part of, you know, what makes a city really, really smart. So in a nutshell, that's essentially, you know, my view around a smart city. But if we take it, maybe let's take it like one step further, right? Mm-hmm. If there are also cities that have, you know, the kind of workflows that they've built enable them to know how a city changes across each piece of infrastructure, Mm. right? So the dynamicism of, you know, moving along the same roadway that goes through an industrial area, it goes into the city, and then it goes into a neighborhood requires different types of interventions. Mm. And of course, the city changes over time. That Mm. is also, you know, having that type of real-time feedback is also helpful for cities to start A, managing traffic, managing traffic flows, B, also managing the way in which the people who use the city interact with it in real life, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there are multiple layers to this. And if you look on Google Maps, there are also exercises where looking at how the store faces the street also influences the quality and the well-being of the people who are interfacing with that street, right? Oh, so. Yeah, so, th- so there, are, there are quite a few elements to what a smart city is. Some mm. of it is hardware, some of it is a software, some of it is just the peopleware, right? Mm. Mm. And, and I think two things are coming to mind because you mentioned data. And yeah. um, recently I was introduced to some interesting concepts um, kind of regarding data, gathering data, gathering information, and kind of trying to make predictions based off of that. You know, so this is, I I have two questions from what you just said. And I think the first one is, is there a danger in relying too much on data from the past? You know, so I'll use the example and I've used this example quite a bit, but you're wearing a white shirt right now. Um, If you wore a white shirt for five days in a row, can I assume that on the sixth day, you'll also be wearing a white shirt, you know? And so I'm wondering, you know, if if we're gathering data on, say, for example, traffic flow in the city, you know, what if, on a particular day, there's an accident. So I'm wondering where does kind of the the human element of kind of looking at data and kind of making, I'm going to say inferences that only a human can make, you know, kind of say, okay, so we know that on this particular day at this robot, there's this many cars pass, um, but there could be something that will disrupt that. So we, you know, we kind of have to make leeway within how we implement policies you know, so for example, if you're going to put a traffic cop at a particular light, you know that if the traffic light goes out, you might need more than one traffic cop at that light. You know, so I'm wondering, so where does that kind of, is there a danger in us relying too much on data? You know, um, and, you know, is there a way to kind of circumvent that? Um, is there a way to kind of use both the data? And because you spoke, you spoke about the, um, the information, you used the example of Lagos, how people then know how to get around. And that is in itself data. So I'm wondering, you know, is, are we going to get to a point where, sorry, um, are we going to get to a point where the people are able to kind of use their own discretion? Or is it going to be a case where, you know, I go outside and the only way I can know, you know, how I'm going to go about my day is if I check all the data, I check where my taxi is coming, this traffic light is out, or this shop is closed, you know, that kind of thing. I'm just wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. You remind me of something. Um, so there was a study that Keith Chen uh, ran with with massive data. So this is this is like just when we started to have the the computational power to run n is all, which basically like everything, right? And 
what he did was he tried to see whether there are differences in in in, in how people save and the language that they use, mm. right? Um, and what was interesting was some languages some languages you know have a future tense, some languages don't. Uh, some languages have a past tense, some languages don't, right? Um, and, and of course, you can already make the inference, like you're making it in your head, that mm. of course, if, if you have a future tense in, in your lingua franc, uh, then you potentially have a sense of, you know, there is, there is value in putting the money away for tomorrow. Mm. Right? Mm. But that varies, it, you know, varies, and if you, you have to correct that for a number of different factors, right? But here's what's interesting. The interesting bit is that this comes from Noam Chomsky's um, thought piece around, you know, um, linguistics. So how language essentially influences the logical infrastructure that we use to interpret the world and communicate our interpretation of the world, right? And that, of mm-hmm. course, translates into how we make decisions. And mm-hmm. right now, we're we, we're we're adopting a a data environment that is almost within a shared kind of language framework, but it's spread across a, a population that is quite heterogeneous in terms of, you know, the logical infrastructure that it uses to make decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right? And, 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 and then on top of that, we, we talk about the future as if it would be highly correlated with the past, right? I mean, think about it this way. Um, to introduce, you know, just washing your hands after, you know, just washing your hands in general as a sanitary kind of exercise. That took a while for people to adopt. Um, Seatbelts, you know, and their impact on saving lives. That took a while for people to adopt, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it, it would have been very unlikely to predict that the cell phone, this giant thing that I put on my hip, on my ear, would essentially become a handheld computer that, at the time, would fill a room, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, 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 the interesting bit about the past or these massive stores of data and the extent to which they can predict the future is really, really an interesting piece. So. Mm-hmm. My thoughts are quite straightforward, right? Right now, we're moving to a point where N is what, which mm. is the example that you flagged right now. You know, if I'm wearing a white shirt, you know, for the next five days, what is the probability that I'm going to wear a white shirt on the sixth day? Mm. You know, of course, the probability would, would seem very high unless if the sixth day is a Saturday. And if mm-hmm. I don't factor that in, if I don't factor that in, you know, <laughs> you know, of course, you know, the modeling work is is is, is just going to be off. So mm. the real the real question is, you know, what what are we using the data for? Is are we using the data to make decisions or to make informed decisions? So mm. that that's the challenge that, that we sort of face with, right? Like when you see a statistic like inflation rate is going up by X percent, you know, the question is, what does that actually mean, right? If, if you see, if you see a, a data point that says you've got, you know, 700 trucks moving through this location per hour, you know, what does that actually mean at scale, right? If we're going to say that, you know, the value of time for a certain community is say 300 rand an hour or something like that, you know, what does that mean, you know, if we're all human, if we're all people and we, we all experience the same amount of time and therefore it should be a shared similar value. It shouldn't vary based on income, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, so, so just to sort of, you know, close the loop here, we're, we're at a, you know, we're sitting at a very difficult point. Yeah. You know? As a globe, right? Mm. The, the collective intelligence in the data world mm-hmm. is moving at a faster pace than the institutional intelligence that's required mm. to manage it, to understand mm. it, to mm. pay attention to its nuances, to pay attention to its social and psychological impacts on society, mm. right? Flip side, society is deriving a lot of dangers and a lot of benefits from the same level of data that is being used to either advertise products, either connect 
you know, riders and drivers, you know, or to basically connect consignments to trucking companies, right? All of these connection points, this nexus is, is really producing a scenario where the institutions that we're used to actually need to change as much as the technology is. Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where I'm seeing like city government, you know, recruitment processes, talent management, higher education, information, knowledge, textbooks, et cetera, right? All of that is really shifting, mm. you know? And, and, and the question is like, are we shifting with the tide or are we just stuck in the ocean? You know, mm. just going with it as it moves. Right? Mm. So it, it, those are two different pieces. One is on the surface and the other one is beneath. Mm. You know, that's where the current is. Mm. And that's where the data hides, mm. right? But mm. what will people do? What will people do? What do people value? You know, we value normal human things, man. Like we haven't mm. evolved to a point where like we really grasp the scale and magnitude of what we're doing. Yes. We have, yeah. Mm. Like we're still prehistoric. I mean, we're still, you know, homo sapiens inherently, mm. biologically. So the mm. logical infrastructure that we use, you know, is easy, easy, easily tapped into from the data set but it doesn't translate on a biological level on a consistent rate, you know, mm. but it's possible. It's likely. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, just touching on that even, um, because I'm, I'm thinking now, you know, we're talking about cities and um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of localization because um, mm. you, mentioned, you mentioned municipalities, et cetera. And I understand that smart cities, they, they're quite closely linked to municipalities and, you know, um, would you like us to pause for a second there? No, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. I don't know what it is. All right. Um, yeah. So municipalities are quite closely linked to the idea of smart city. So um, I know we're running out of time. So I think I just have maybe two main questions and this one final question. So the one question is, where do rural areas fit into all of this? Um, you know, so I'm from Ramamavolo. <laughs> yeah, I'm from Ramamavolo in Limpopo. Um, and you're from Rarangu, and uh, you're a Tswana man. Uh, some of my family is Tswana. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear, um, you know, about smart cities. But where do rural cities fit in? You know, as, a, as someone living in a rural area, you know, they say that by 2050, almost 70% of the world will be living in cities. But that does still leave 30% in rural areas. So is there a smart rural village, you know, for example? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is an interesting question. So uh, let me start it off this way. We're almost from the same from the same area. Um, Zibidiela, Hamadisha. Oh, okay. So I got it wrong. Not, not the northwest. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. so let's deep dive on that, right? So, when we think about rural areas, what are we really thinking about, right? Are we are we thinking about village communities, or are we thinking about like peri-urban areas that are like right in front of an urban area and it's a village? Right. Mm. And and this is this question raises uh, it reminds me of something that that I picked up early on, which was there was a point where the a research team was trying to use a USSD code to mm. help people who are living far from the main road mm. to actually book a seat on the bus mm. so that the bus knows when to dispatch. Oh. And and this was like. 2004 or something like that right so oh, wow you know and it, it actually was like right in Limpopo and one of the interesting pieces around this was that it improved the efficiency of the bus operation they actually got an additional bus for that hmm. but it also improved the the livelihoods of the communities that were there because now you don't have to wait three hours for a bus you you actually have a predictable you know arrival and departure time but also you get notified that hey the bus is going to be coming you know at this time in where you are right so but we haven't really scaled that at a rural level especially from a village community perspective Mm -hmm. right but what we have scaled is the agricultural potential of the village communities. And what I find fascinating here is that when you look at the technological shifts that we're seeing in the agricultural landscape, the ripple effects there can either move people 
from the rural area. So the farmers, like they could really move from the rural area, live mm. in Johannesburg, live in Pretoria, right? And just have other people run the business mm. or to do the opposite. It could start to disaggregate the cities. Okay. And this is where the, the question of like, what do we do to enable a rural development Mm-hmm. that incentivizes a strong shift towards rural areas, be mm-hmm. commercial development side associated with that. And I mean, right now we're working from home, so mm-hmm. there is a potential for this. Mm-hmm. But see, how do municipalities manage this nexus, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in rural areas, one of the biggest challenges is, actual, is actually capital allocation mm-hmm. and into which is prioritized. But then historically, you look at Bokutatswana, um, in particular, you look at Natal, um, and, and you could also look at, you know, Limpopo in general. You know, the big thing there was, you know, communities could actually build the universities. They could actually contribute to building the infrastructure that is necessary for the community to serve itself. And quite clearly, that is a pathway, you know, a form of a smart city because of this shared ownership, because of this shared custodianship, right? But it's really hard to achieve that if we don't have a collective interface, right? So how do rural communities then say, well, we actually need a road here, whereas this is traditional land, right? Mm-hmm. Right? right, that's one piece. The other piece is how do, how do investors interact with the municipalities when certain pieces of land, like in Belenkumbi, for instance, right? So a lot of the land there, I think it's over 55%, is still going through the, you know, the claim process. Mm, so okay. you can't really do much with it. Mm, mm. So, so we're at this interesting, you know, point where we have to make a decision, you know, as a society, as a community in general, um, around what we do with rural areas. And some of us have to make the difficult decision to get out of, you know, mafiking and, and start working in, in the CBD, but with, with a focus specifically on trying to build that back as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's quite an interesting, quite an interesting landscape, man. Mm. Now, I, this is definitely that's a conversation. Yeah, that, that's a long, long answer. Sorry about that, man. No, 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 no. It's absolutely fine. I love, I love hearing, you know, your perspective on it because um, it's, it's something that is sitting quite heavily on my mind um yeah. i think maybe just to wrap up um because you're going to be one of the, our speakers at africa tech week um mm-hmm. and uh you're going to be speaking this so i just wanted to find out you know um why do you think it's relevant to attend a conference about tech in africa um you know what's the oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow 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 yeah let me put it this way right we, at some point, we were called um, lions on the move. Mm-hmm. You know? at, at some, that was a McKinsey report. At some point, we were called, um, you know, the a black continent. You know, mm-hmm. at some point, we were called um, the, the what, was, what was the other wording? Um, um, the, I can't remember the other one. But now... What is Africa? Africa is a marketplace. Yes. Africa is one of the few marketplaces left mm. that are A, leapfrogging many of the stages that would classify us or keep us in this third world category, this developing world phrasing. I mean, it's essentially a misrepresentation of how self-informed Africans have always been. Mm. And it's quite exciting to see that, you know, what Efuru um, of Flora Noapa writes about in Efuru, you know, you say, well, we're going to marketplaces. We are trading, you know, women are selling goods, you know, people are hunting for products, sourcing them across the seas, right? Mm. We've been doing that for mm. a very long time. And for the first time, I think we are realizing that we have a short window to take action. Mm. And this conference for me is one of those conferences where, A, we're really talking about it, but mm. we're talking to people who are doing something about it as well. Mm. So, 
Unlocking Africa as a Marketplace in a conference. I wouldn't miss that. <laughs> I wouldn't miss that, man. Like, I wouldn't yeah. miss that. And I'm really lo- looking forward to, to seeing you on the Building African Cities panel, um, just to kind of hear more, um, maybe some of the things that we didn't touch on now and, you know, to see you expand. And it's been absolutely fantastic chatting to you. Um, it's wonderful to meet you, um, you know, and um, I just want to say good luck, um, you know. Uh, hopefully one day when I go back to the village in Mpopo and, you know, I need to get to Johannesburg, I can just send a message and I can get a bus booked, et cetera. You know, that would be quite cool. <laughs> so, so Limpopo is interesting. It was probably the last minute, right? Um, we had a concept that we shared um, with the province to say, let's build a high-speed line between Johannesburg, Pretoria, and Bulogwani, mm. right? Mm. So we're talking about 120 you know, kilometers you know, minimum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, imagine the savings that will come from that. Imagine wow. the, the lives that would change just because of that. Just, just imagine the trajectory of that infrastructure and how it could affect people's, you know, livelihoods in general, right? It will be both a passenger and a goods trade. So oh, you wow. can basically like transport all kinds of stuff right, at a very, very high speed within a very short period of time without being stuck in traffic, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, without being waiting in line at the taxi rank, without, you know, having to carry everything on your lap, right? Mm. You know, and that, that I think, for Limpopo is really, really the future. And I, and I think for our entire continent, you know, Mm. that's the, you know, Mm. um, Mm. there's no other way about it. Mm. No, that's fantastic and ho- hopefully that's the f- like you said at the beginning the future is now so you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so i'm keen to see that you know the ball rolling all right uh, thank you so much offensive for joining me um you know you. i i look forward to hearing more from you in the future yeah yeah no man um yeah i'm just grateful thank you really all right grateful. all right thank you peace be with you my brother shop shop guys yes. Yes.